Welcome to Workforce Rx with Futuro Health, where future focused leaders in education, workforce development, and healthcare explore new innovations and approaches. I'm your host, Vontone Quinlevin, CEO of Futuro Health. Employers and policymakers continue to grapple with an unprecedented gap between job openings and available workers, not to mention the perplexing combination of other economic conditions such as high inflation and negative growth. Here today to help us sort out what all of this means for workers and the training they need to succeed in the future economy is Jane Oates who has had a long career in education and training, including serving as Assistant Secretary for Employment and Training at the U.S. Department of Labor in the Obama administration. She is currently President of Working Nation, a nonprofit organization nationally focused on educating the public and policymakers about structural unemployment, skills gap, and achievable solutions to prepare workers in the future. Thanks so much for joining us today, Jane. Vaughn, like the rest of America, I can't say no to you. I'm so glad to be with you. And likewise, I'm looking forward to being on the panel with you shortly in Nashville with the American Society of Association Executives. That's going to be a great discussion. I'm looking forward to that, too. Yes. And well, maybe we can give our listeners here a, a preview. Let's start with having you um, add to my very brief discussion of Working Nation to help our audience better understand your mission as an organization and what you and your team are focused on on a day-to-day basis. Well, thanks for that. I mean, Working Nation really is now six years old and focuses its attention, as you said, on the challenges that the average American is facing uh, looking for a job and the average corporation is looking uh, at trying to attract that talent. So we try to level the playing field. Many of us have really deep knowledge in the changing world of work, and so many others have no network, no access, and actually are building their decisions based on really poor information. So through video, through uh, journalism, through live events, we try to make sure that we're getting the most up-to-date, correct information without being filtered for any purpose to the American people. Well, thank you for your leadership at the National Home to try to level the playing field. It is definitely difficult to decipher what is going on today. And so so tell us a little bit more, Jane. What are your top priorities currently? So we focus on everything, people leaving high school to people coming back out of retirement to reenter the workforce and everything in between. But this fall, we are really looking at an old initiative and two new initiatives. So our old initiative is a focus on veterans. Every November, we dedicate the whole month of November to content around returning veterans, veterans who have not been able to make a connection or the connection they want in the civilian workforce, even if they've been home for three, five, seven, 10 years. We focus on their families, particularly their spouses, and make making sure that we're telling the stories about the organizations that are really helping them connect. This will be our third year doing that. Very excited. And our chief content officer, Joan Lynch, has a personal connection to that uh, through her family. So she's very excited and energized every November as we put this forward. Then the two new initiatives are really uh, first looking at how do we get that number of employed Americans who uh, self-attest to having a disability back to work. You know, Vaughn, right now, 17% of people who have a diagnosed disability are working. 
That's unacceptable. And these are those people with disabilities who are able and willing to work. They want a job. So we're going to try beginning this October to really talk about what forward thinking employers are doing to really tap this talent pool. It's not a feel good thing. It's a business imperative. Let's get these people to work. So that's, we're very excited about that. And as I said, we'll do a whole month of content on that in October. And we partnered uh, in August with an organization called Disabilities In, which is a technical assistance uh, group that and an advocacy group that helps employers figure that out. We were so privileged to be a partner with them at their conference and did a lot of great interviews on site. And then finally, we're beginning our work with a project funded by the ECMC Foundation, looking at a particular group single moms trying to finish their two-year degree. And with all your experience in California, even though California has been a, a leader in trying to get wraparound services and still does tremendous work on community college campuses, the reality is these moms are spending so much more than two years to get an associate's degree. Too often they're spending, the, the national average is six years to get what should be a two-year degree. We need to help them get that degree faster so that they can enter the workforce. So as you can see, really, we'll do everything else too, but those are three projects that are at top of mind for this fall. Well, these three projects are very important and go to a concept called the hidden workforce. Uh, for those in the audience who are interested, Joe Fuller at um, Harvard has a whole publication around hidden workforce. And where do we tap and bring in talent pools that are not normally participating in the workforce. So thank you so much, Jane, for working on these three projects. Um, I wanted to ask you, uh, what's your take on the workforce impact of the Inflation Reduction Act and the opportunities it might create for green jobs? Um, what needs to be done to get people ready to take advantage of these opportunities? Well, you know, it's really exciting because the federal government does best when they try to be a catalyst for new ideas and new projects. And, you know, I think at this particular juncture, uh, people should get ready because the money will start hitting the street probably in six to 12 months. As you know very well, it takes a while for agencies to get the money out to people because they have to design a fair and equitable process, usually through a grant system. But some of it, I think some of this money will come down more directly to states but it does take states time to get a process together uh, to make sure people are aware of it and everybody has an opportunity to participate. But I think there's going to be tremendous, you mentioned green, tremendous opportunities both for individual workers and for entrepreneurs. One of the biggest examples is in Southern California with Charger Help. We know that a lot of people who recognize that as we move to electric vehicles, we're going to need a more democratic way, little d democratic, a fair way to get these uh, chargers in place. Many people who live in multifamily dwellings will not be able to hook it up to their home electricity. They'll be looking for charger stations. And I love charger help. Actually, two women 
uh, two women of color started that company and they're an early leader in this. I think there'll be lots of opportunity for that as the money hits the street on this, both for battery development, for chargers, for th new ways to both do a better job in preparing clean water, but also a better job in detection. We, we heard uh, several years ago the horrible story about Flint. You know, we should figure out ways to make sure our home drinking water is safe and not depend on the city or the municipality to tell us it is. There should be an easy way, just like we can check on other things like radon, like carbon dioxide, like fire prevention, all those things. We should be able to do that with drinking water. So this is a call out, Vaughn, to all those entrepreneurs out there to figure out a way that we make sure that we're drinking water that's safe. Jane, you mentioned that the federal government does best when it is a catalyst. And I was wondering on this concept of community entrepreneurs, you know, community enterprises, what can the government do to catalyze the creation of business ownership? Well, you know, again, bringing up California, uh, your former SBA person is now the national SBA director, and she's doing a wonderful job. But if you think about entrepreneurs who are looking at a small scale, trying to get money to capitalize their business, looking for a loan of under $50,000. So not big money by you know Wall Street standards, but a big hurdle, a challenge for someone trying to start a small business. They have such a difficult time getting access to that capital, particularly women, particularly women of color. And we need to make sure that the federal government is out there pushing these small loans, whether it's through community development banks, whether it's through the federal government directly, whether it's in sending larger banks uh, to really look at this specialized population, because we all knew anecdotally that this was true before COVID, but certainly when we were looking at the federal money that was coming out to support businesses during COVID, we heard loud and clear that small businesses who needed that money so much more than their larger uh, partners weren't getting access to this money at all. That big banks were kind of saying, you don't do business with us now, we're giving it to our clients first. We need to make sure that these small entrepreneurs, these small business entrepreneurs, uh, you know, they, they have great ideas. They could certainly scale if given the financing. We need to make sure they get that early stage financing. And is there a role for workforce development paired with the capital? Like, how do you think about the two tools of um, the government? Well, you know, I'm such a proponent of the public workforce system. To me, uh, the workforce investment boards at the state and local level, the American Job Centers, uh, are the entry point for everybody. And they, by statute, are given to customers you know, absolutely that job seeker customer in every iteration, but also the business customer. And I think many of the WIBs are still, the workforce investment boards are still struggling with how to best serve small and medium-sized business. They certainly know how to get to Futuro, as you know, uh, and they know how to get to the big recognizable names, but getting to those small and medium-sized employers has remained a difficulty for them. And it's really not good for anybody because we know that small business is really the engine of growth for our country. And they're the people that are creating new jobs and backfilling existing jobs at a greater degree than some of the bigger employers. In my prior life, when I talk to small businesses, they say they're just 
busy staying afloat in their day job, much less have the capacity to spend time in meetings that have to do with anything that is ancillary to staying alive and bringing in revenues. Um, does that beg for a different solution with regards to small business serving the workforce needs of small businesses? You know, I think that this is going to look like a shameless plug for our panel in Tennessee, but I think associations play a critical role because you're exactly right. That small business owner has no time to go sit on a workforce board and probably they shouldn't. You know, they don't have the capacity personally or professionally, but they also don't have the reach to really take up a seat on that board in many instances. So the association by sitting on the board or by bringing forward their talent needs to the workforce boards uh, would be would be ideal. And we've seen some associations do this tremendously well. I mean, I, I have to point out the manufacturing, you know, the local manufacturing associations do a tremendous job, not only of voicing it to the public workforce board, but talking to local media. And I think more of the associations need to become more active. We've seen them uh, do amazing things. Yes, uh, advocacy. Yes, publication of the talent needs. Yes, the fact that in manufacturing, for example, it's not dark, dirty, and dangerous. Or with some of the healthcare associations, it's not just nurses and doctors. You know that healthcare needs so many more talented people. But we also see them bring the small employers together to kind of do amazing things like apprenticeships. So they, as a single small employer, they can't stand up an apprenticeship on their own. But with the collective, they can certainly do that. Well, I saw this uh, in play in the Fresno area itself, which is a community in the more the rural area of California. Um, Mike Betts, who headed up the Betts uh, Manufacturing Company, gathered about 75 small uh, manufacturers who are all struggling with their workforce. And because he pulled them together collectively, they were able to better work with the community college and the capacity of the community college to get all the career education pathways lined up properly. Uh, because, for example, the local airports were shutting down. They didn't have pilots that were being created for, for the local economy. And so together they were able to solve that. But as you can imagine, no individual small company would even consider taking on a challenge that big. That's right. Like I said, shameless plug for our association uh, convening, but I think associations are underappreciated and some of them, you know, not as creative as others. So I hope they get to learn a lot from each other in Tennessee when we're there. Yes, there's certainly established playbooks that they can pick up. And, and Jane, you've seen the world from many vantage points. I wonder if you could share some of the best practices uh, that you've gleaned from each of those roles and what has been successfully taken to scale. Because scale, I think, often eludes workforce development. No, I think that's right. The best lesson I've learned is really there's nobody who can do it alone, that partnerships are the cornerstone of success. And if I were to go back and think about that, the most important thing we could do as a country collectively, and you and I as individuals, is to really talk about what are the components of a really thriving partnership? Because in the old days, you know, I started as a teacher, a partnership meant that you donated money or that you bought t-shirts, you know, for the, the sports day in the spring, whatever that was, or that you sponsored a parent teacher event. Um, that's really lovely. 
but it doesn't change the way either of us as partners operate. In my mind, an effective partnership really improves our functioning equally, uh, although one of us may get a little more than the other at a certain time. So an employer may get a little more in terms of talent pool return or an education partner may get better outcomes because they're placing their students. But I think we really need to talk much more openly about what effective partnerships really are and how do you create one? Because I think that the communication piece, uh, the the honesty upfront about what's in this for me, because in every partnership, there is something in it for each partner or they wouldn't partner. And if we could just be a little bit more transparent about why we're approaching each other, I think we'd get much better results. And also, you know, I'm a big data person, as are you. We should really always be looking to evaluate and assess our partnerships and be willing to close down the ones that are no longer effective and have no hard feelings about that. From the beginning, say to each other, if this stops being a good deal for either of us, we can walk away and still be friends. I always say, what is it that we can do together that we can't do alone? And I think that's the the core of finding the win-win-win. Yes. And you're absolutely right. Every organization has to bring something to the table. They can't just be bringing the hands out to the table. So we, we all need to do what we do best and then come together so that we could do more. So true. So true. Good philosophy. Jane, if you could redo your job as Assistant Secretary for Employment and Training, what would you do differently? Because all of us who have stepped into these appointed roles, you know, we came with one level of understanding. And now that you've seen more, what would you do differently? What advice would you give? So the one thing I wouldn't do differently is I had the best political team and the best uh, career team. So I'd keep all the same people. But this is really reflective of my time with Working Nation. The one thing that I would do differently across the board is make sure that every grant that I put out, and you remember in those days, my budget was $16 billion. We put all of that on the street except our payroll money. And I would say that everybody was allowed to use money to self-promote, to storytell. I mean, because I think then, you know, in, in the Great Recession, uh, the problem was convincing people that they could switch careers, that they could look at other sectors, because so many of the sectors that were impacted during the Great Recession really did shrink dramatically. You know, you look at the auto industry, you look at how the Midwest was hit hard. So people did have to think about not only changing jobs, but changing sectors and changing careers. So I think it would have been very helpful at that time to do what Working Nation does now and put workers on video saying, this is how I made the transition. And if that worker looked like me, I might think hmm, I can do that too. And looking like me could be gender or it could be color. It could be age. It could be experience. But telling those stories through the mouth of the real participant really convinces people. And obviously Working Nation, our team does it at a high quality level. But I think today it could be done with your iPhone. You know, it's about reaching audiences. And today it's not necessarily as much about 
convincing you to change careers, change sectors. Today, it's more about motivating you to come off the sidelines. You and I are both nerds, and we worry all the time about the labor market participation rate with a 61% labor market participation rate. 39% of the people cannot be sitting on the sidelines. It just doesn't work. And now more than ever, showing real people who look like you, regardless of your age, finding a great job in this very different, very changing, very scary economy, you know, I think would motivate people and convince people that they could come back in and take another try. Well, those are very telling statistics. And so as you're interviewing the workers, do you see a difference in the stories that they're telling now versus the pre-pandemic economy? So certainly during the pandemic, it was a lot about women and childcare. And, you know, we heard all those terms like she session and things like that. Women are still underrepresented, but the last few months have shown that they're coming back. And I think now with schools reopening and a little more security about the safety of schools and not having to shut down, I think women will in the next few months probably get to their pre-pandemic levels. But what's holding people back now? I think that some people uh, at the beginning of the pandemic, when they were able to retire, did. And now they've had some time, you know, at 58 or 62, 65, 67, whatever. Now they decided, wait a minute, I, I'm not sure I'm ready to not work. I'm not sure that I don't still need work as part of my purpose in life. So we need to show them that there's ways to come back either at the same level and job title where they were, whether they were in upper management or mid-management. I mean, I love the stories of people who were at the C-suite in corporate America who have now decided post-COVID to go into leadership in nonprofits. We need their skills, you know, and I don't care whether they're 75. We need their business acumen to run some of these nonprofits that are really struggling. I mean, our CEO, Art, always says, you know, nonprofits are businesses. Services come in and out and they have to run like a business. They have to have a bigger heart than many of for-profit businesses, but they have to run like a business or they won't still exist. So I'm really hopeful that as we are now clearing the pandemic, as we now have more jobs actually than we did pre-pandemic, even though the leisure and hospitality sector is still down 900,000 jobs, we need to get people back in and looking at what they could do differently, whether they're young workers, whether they're men or women, whether they're returning citizens, whether they're people who chose to retire prematurely, we need them back in. Well, bringing all these different populations back into the workforce is a good transition to this topic of short-term Pell. Uh, I was wondering if you could explain for our listeners why this financial aid tool is helpful to adults, especially as they're making transitions. And didn't the House pass a definition that defines what type of programs of studies could qualify? Yeah, I think that the fervor of some of the members of Congress about only, you know, long-term only things that are a semester or a year or longer, and bias against non-traditional sites. So online, the bias against for-profits. I mean, look, who cares whether Google is delivering something or the local community college? 
if that something gets you a good family sustaining wage job. I don't think people around their kitchen table talk about tax status of providers. And yet it has completely, you know, taken over the Congress who's in favor of for profits and who's not in favor of them. I, I think it's a problem because there are for profits. I mean, I mentioned Google, but Microsoft and Cisco has been doing this forever. And we look at what IBM is doing, but also the schools. I mean, do we care if Cengage is for profit or not? I, I'm just, I'm conflicted by this. I mean, we don't talk about other things, limiting people's options. And I don't think we should limit options when it comes to education in terms of duration. We should always be looking at the quality of credentials. And if any provider is not getting people into good jobs by earning their certificate, their credential of any kind, Quite frankly, I would go so far as, as a degree. And Vaughn, you and I both know that a lot of nonprofit degree granting institutions would not meet that standard. They don't see their job as getting people jobs. And I think everybody who's offering education and training should see absolutely their primary responsibility is the quality of their product and the way they deliver that product. But if they don't start seeing that product as being linked to that person getting a job, we're going to have limited enrollment in post-secondary education. That's right. And um, people are walking away from higher education with their feet, given the higher education enrollment declines in the last few years. That's right. Let's talk about work experience, because that's so important. I mean, if you're looking at a candidate who comes straight out of school with no work experience versus one that come with work experience, you know, undoubtedly the one with work experience is going to be so much more interesting. Why aren't co-op courses where the work experience is embedded into your education journey like in Canada, that's that's part of the design of the education pathway. Like, why, why can't students do more of that here in the United States? It is such a great question because, you know, we have powerhouses of co-ops, you know, Northeastern University in Massachusetts, Drexel University in Philadelphia. The, the bottom line is those programs have never scaled. And part of it is, uh, figuring out how to create a revenue model where the university or college can survive. You know, their model is it's going to take you five or six years to finish your bachelor's degree because you're going to have two or three co-ops. What do you do for the tuition in between? So it's it's been, I think, a challenge for other colleges to pick up. I do not think it's an unsurmountable challenge. But in the meantime, Every college has other things that they could do short of a co-op that would give their students and mandate maybe even their students have a work-based learning experience. Paid internships. I am so delighted that the federal government is now paying their interns. It was embarrassing to me during my time, especially in the Senate, that we did not pay interns. That sends a clear message. You know, rich people can have their kids intern and support them. Middle-class people can struggle and make tough decisions to support their college-age students or their students coming out of high school in an unpaid internship. But poor people have no choice. And for a lot of middle-class people, it was a draconian choice. You know, they were not taking vacations or not putting protein on the table so they could support uh, their college-age student in an internship. 
that is ridiculous. Everybody deserves to get paid for work. So I'm delighted that governments are starting to do that. And I think it means that there will be uh, a wider lens for people to look at internships. But colleges have work study at their disposal as well. And instead of putting those students to work in the, the cafeteria, no more in the library. I mean, there's some in the library, now more in the tech lab probably. But the reality is that's supplementing their income. That's allowing them to get help that's free. Uh, and they should do more with getting people real work experience because that means a lot on a resume that even though you were supplemented by work study, you were working at a corporation, you were working at a small business, you were working at a nonprofit that was not your college. Because I think people think too often when they see that you worked at your college you know, during your ex experience that you really didn't do real work, that you didn't have the same rigor of an external third party employer. So I wish they would do more. And finally, you know, I think corporations need to go to colleges and say, we'll match, you know, with our own money, we could do 10 uh, paid internships this year. If you match it with work study money, we could do 20. Well, I hope that the listeners have been paying attention so that we can create an echo chamber for all of these great ideas that you have put forth. They are great um, best practices. Let's end here, Jane, by giving you the magic wand. What is the big hairy goal that you would set for our nation if you could? Boy, Vanna, I would take away all the buts in our system, the B-U-T's. You know, I would hire you, but you don't have experience. I would hire you, but you have a disability. I would hire you, but you're too young. I would hire you, but you're too old. I would hire you, but you have had uh, some involvement with the legal system. I think if we could just look at people for their skills, if we could say, you have the skills I need, you weren't what I had in mind. You know, I wasn't picturing a 65 year old white woman. I wasn't picturing somebody who had a blip in their juvenile record, but you have the skills that I need. And I really am going to give you a shot. I think if we could get an equal access hiring system and philosophy, we would be so much better off. I love that. I love that. Jane, thank you so much for spending time with us today. You are always inspiring us to do more. I love this challenge of skills-based hiring and getting rid of the butts, the BUTs. Uh, thank you for joining us today, Jane. Anytime with you, Vaughn, is good time for me. You are such an amazing leader. Thank you for all that you do. Likewise, likewise. I'm Vontone Quinlivan with Patura Health. Thanks for checking out this episode of Workforce Rx. I hope you will join us again as we continue to explore how to create a future-focused workforce in America. Mm -hmm.